And this morning we return to this great passage in Matthew in which Jesus is instructing his disciples about a new and exciting way that his ministry would be done in the world. Now, if you look at your Bibles at the 16th chapter, this is our third attempt at explaining this passage of Scripture. I want to get right into this today. This is a very, very important part of Scripture. So if you look in Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13, stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word today. And we pray, Lord, you'd open up our eyes to the truth of your scriptures. Help us, Lord, to just learn something about this this great institution that you have on this earth to do your work, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Much of what we've studied in the past four years in the Gospel of Matthew leads up to this climactic part of the scriptures in the 16th chapter. The rest of the New Testament, the rest of Matthew and the rest of the New Testament will have as its basis much of what we read right here in this scripture because this is where Jesus introduces a new and dynamic way in which he would work in the world. Now previous to this in the ministry of Jesus, he had taught his disciples about the kingdom. He taught the people about the kingdom. The Jews had been waiting for the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. For over 500 years they've been waiting and they thought that when the Messiah came that Jesus would immediately begin that kingdom upon the earth. The disciples thought that as well. They followed Jesus and as they did they expected that any moment that Jesus would show his regal authority and there would be some indication that the kingdom of God was ready to begin in the world. Now, we've seen already, as we've studied the life of Jesus, that when he had completed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, that the people were ready right then to make him their king. And they weren't so much interested in the salvation of their souls as they were interested in their physical needs. They thought about the healing of Jesus, the great miracles that he did. They thought about the capabilities that Jesus had to feed them when they were hungry. And rather than looking at the salvation of their souls, they wanted Jesus to be the king who would supply their physical needs. Now, to the disciples' amazement, though, Jesus rejected this attempt to make him the king. And when the moment was golden, 
When it looked like Jesus could have seized that opportunity, the disciples actually witnessed Jesus leaving and getting away from the crowds that are in Galilee as they clamored to make him the king. And so we come to this text in the 16th chapter, and we find that Jesus has removed himself from the crowds that were around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Those that wanted to make him king, he left that place, and instead he'd gone to the farthest northern point in Israel, to the town of Caesarea Philippi. That was mostly Gentile territory. And there, Jesus was in the midst of of a heathen, idolatrous country, And if you go there today, you can still see the the ruins of their temples and you can see the the grottos that have been hollowed out into the rocks that held their idols that they worshipped. And there Jesus was, away from those crowds, the Jews in Galilee, and in the midst of this perverse, wicked Gentile country, he turned to his disciples and he asked them a question and he said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now that is the first and perhaps the most important point that we read in this passage because the correct answer to that question is the basis for everything that follows. And then the corollary to that question is one that he asked the disciples directly to them, asking them, but who do you say that I am? Now the answers that the Jews and others had given to who Christ was was the wrong answer. They said, you are a prophet. They said, you're Jeremiah, you're Elias, maybe you're John the Baptist. But it was Peter who gave that great confession when he turned to Jesus and said, who are you? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Whom do men say that I am? That's what Jesus asked. And that is the most important question that anyone can answer. The hope of the world lies in the answer to that question, who is Jesus Christ? And when Peter spoke up for the rest of the apostles and gave his answer, now Jesus has the material from which he can build his church, the material that will grace people who have been brought into his kingdom. Now, as I said, of course, you know, this is our third message on this passage. And in the first part of the message, in verses 16 to 18, we looked at the placement of the church's foundation. Jesus said that he would build a church. And without going into a lot of detail, the way that Jesus speaks of this in verses 17 and 18 is a little bit hard for us to understand. And that's because our English translation does not really bring out all of the rich meaning that's behind the Greek words that are used here. Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee. And there he's talking about the great confession that Peter made. He said, Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church. Now we looked at that statement and we learned that the rock on which Jesus builds the church is himself. Now what we have here is actually a play on words. The name Peter in the Greek means a small stone. So Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you are a small rock, but upon this massive rock, upon the massive foundation stone, upon me I will build my church. And so the foundation of God's church is not built upon a fallible man, but is built upon the infallible creator of this universe, who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
Now, Peter's confession was a good confession. And if you want to say that his confession was part of the foundation of the church, then we could agree with that because he spoke the truth. Uh, This statement that Peter made has the same issue in mind, that Jesus builds his church on truth. And the word of God says that Jesus Christ himself is full of grace and truth. That's what we covered in the first part of the message. Then in the second part, on this great passage, we discuss God's plan for the church. The church is not the same as the kingdom. Jesus said, I will build my church. He did not say that I will build my kingdom. He planned something different from the kingdom because he didn't intend to bring his kingdom upon the earth, a visible kingdom for many centuries later. We're now into the 21st century and we're still waiting for that visible kingdom of Christ to come. And no one knows when it will come. But we do know this, that by the providence of God and by the promise of Jesus Christ, in his good time, his kingdom will come upon the earth. Now in the meantime though, the way that God's work is done in the world is through the church. The church is the called out elect assembly of God. It's been tasked with the responsibility of glorifying Jesus Christ. We have the responsibility to preach the gospel and point them to the way of salvation in Christ. And the church is also the gathering of God's people together to meet together to learn about Jesus Christ. And so if you want to be used by God... The only place that you can go in the world now is to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the place that God has used to carry out his work in the world now. Now, So we've covered all of that in the previous messages, and there's really just too much detail for us to go into to to get back into that again. So we're going to move on in this lesson today to another important part of this scripture. And I want to talk to you today about the next phrase, that we find here and this is about the protection of the church the protection that God promises for his church now these verses are filled with interpretive controversy Uh, the first ones that we read uh, they're difficult somewhat to understand and the following parts are no different There's difficulty in determining the foundation of the church. We said the Greek words have to be explored. There's a problem in separating out the difference between the church and the kingdom. That's a doctrinal issue that we need to talk about. But there's another problem here, and that is understanding what Jesus meant when he said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What did Jesus mean when he said, the gates of hell will not prevail over the church? Well, whatever that means, at the very least, we can draw out something that we can all agree on, that somewhere in there, there's a guarantee of protection. Somewhere in this, there is a guarantee of the invincibility of Christ's church, and this is a promise that the church of Jesus Christ can never be overthrown. Now, there's also a sure indication in that that the church has enemies, If you're concerned about something being overthrown and if God has to have his protection on the church, then that would tell us that the church has enemies. As much as God has done for us, as good as God is, God still has his enemies. And if you're on God's side, all of the enemies that are enemies of God are your enemies also. And that means that every single day of your Christian life that you are involved in a battle. 
G. Campbell Morgan, the great English pastor, said this, Jesus was always merging the two figures of battle and building. He is the builder who needs builders that he can depend upon. He is the king going forth to to conquest who needs soldiers he can depend upon. Now, it's interesting that the idea the world has of Christianity is one that Christianity is nothing but peace, love, and harmony. That the world, or that Christians rather, are a a docile group, that we are filled with love and we are filled with tolerance for all things. Now, there is some truth in what I've said. There's a sense in which those things are true. But there is also a warfare that's clearly talked about in the Bible that our Christian lives are not presented in terms where it's always going to be easy for us, that there is no battle that goes on, that there is no fight that's happening because if you are a Christian that is living for Jesus Christ, you are right in the middle of that fight. And I don't mean that what you should do is go around antagonizing people We don't teach that Christians need to right the wrongs of the world by going out to bomb abortion clinics. We don't tell Christians that you ought to torture people in order to get confessions of faith. And that's been tried. Down through the centuries, false churches have tried those kinds of things. They've tried to uh, uh, be militant about their Christianity. But the Bible very clearly tells us that we are not engaged in a physical warfare. We're not fighting against physical foes. In Ephesians 6.12, the Apostle Paul wrote, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So we don't fight a physical warfare, which means that the weapons that we use to fight in the Christian life are not physical weapons. Paul also said in 2 Corinthians, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So we are in this battle. We're fighting a battle. We're fighting foes that are actually far more powerful than we are. Ephesians says, as Paul wrote, we're fighting principalities and we're fighting powers. We're fighting rulers of darkness. And that means that there is a spiritual enemy that's always against us. And that spiritual enemy consists of Satan and his demons. We fight against the works of Satan. We fight against those things that are manifest in the lives of unbelievers. And if you are a Christian that is serving God, you are not going to be at peace with unbelievers. You're not going to be able to live in this world and enjoy peace, love, and harmony with all people. Now, the Bible does say that as much as in you, as much as lies in you, try to live peaceably with all men. We attempt to do that. But just by virtue of the fact that you try to stand for Christ, that you try to live for him, you are, can be assured of this, that you are going to antagonize people. People don't like your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're really wearing your faith in him as a badge of honor, if you stand up for him, then that creates opposition. But the good news that God has given us in this passage is that you have God's protection. So you're fighting an enemy. He's far more powerful than you. There is no doubt about that. But God promises you will have his protection. 
Well, the controversy then in this part of the passage is this part that says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. What does Jesus mean when he says the gates of hell? Well, in passing, I think it's important for us to note this, that Jesus had no problems at all talking about hell. Now, there are churches and there are pastors that refuse to speak on the subject of hell. But if you're going to listen to Jesus, if you're going to read what he said, you're going to hear a lot about hell because there was a lot of hell in his sermons. He wasn't afraid to warn people that if they don't trust him, they will die and go to that awful place about, uh, called hell. But Jesus says here that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And what did he mean by that? Well, one of the standard interpretations of this is that hell itself is fighting against the church. That hell is trying to storm the church and trying to take it down. And so that means that the church is in a defensive mode, that we are defending ourselves against hell. Now, the problem, though, is with the word gates. Did you ever hear of an enemy picking up the gates of his city and going to war with them? You know, the Bible talks about Samson, that he picked up the gates of the city of Gaza and he carried them to a hill, to a distant hill. But I don't think that Samson had any intention of fighting a war with the gates of that city. Then others have put out a a little bit different twist on this, and they say that the church is in an offensive posture, that what we're doing is we're storming the gates of hell, and what we're trying to do is to overcome hell. We're trying to conquer it. But the scriptures never talk about evangelism in that way. It never talks about evangelism being an assault on hell. I know that's the terminology of many evangelists, but that is not biblical terminology. The Bible does not say that we're fighting against the gates of hell. And that, that's, that, that's a problem because Christians don't really have a desire to possess hell. I don't care anything at all about claiming a victory over hell, claiming conquest over it. I'm content to let hell be what it is and let hell alone. And you know why? Because God already possesses hell. You don't have to conquer something that God already has. God has his own purpose for it. I'm not fighting against hell. I don't want to possess hell. Now, do you know that? That God is the one who's in control of hell? Some people think that hell belongs to the devil. That hell is a place where the devil stays and he stokes the fires of hell and he tries to get people to come in. He invites them in to come and join him there. But Satan is not in hell. Satan has never been in hell. Now, he will be there. One day he will be, and it won't be because he chooses to be there. That's the place where God will put him. But Satan is content right now to stay out of hell, and what he wants to do is try to push as many people towards hell as he can, but he has no intention himself of being there. Hell will be his place of torment, but he's not there now. Hell belongs to God. So what's the best interpretation of the passage? Well, it's best for us to see hell as a metaphor for death. Now, the word that's used here in the original language is the word Hades. And Hades very often speaks of death and the grave. The gates of hell are actually the imprisonment of the soul. And so we have the promise from Jesus Christ that the church will have victory over death. 
The gates of hell represent death, and Jesus promises that the Christian will have victory over death. Gates are something that keep people in or keep people out. We're not trying to break through to get to death. Christians are trying to overcome death. The Bible says that the last enemy that we will have to fight and has to be destroyed is death itself. 1 Corinthians 15 says, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now here then we find a great promise for believers. It was a great promise for these disciples that has been throughout the centuries. The apostles were taught that they were headed for persecution for their faith. Tradition says that all of the apostles except John were martyred. Nero, who was the emperor at the time of the apostle Paul, had his way with Christians and often put them to death in inventive ways. Uh, Some of them, if you recall, we've talked about this before, how Christians were persecuted, that Nero would take Christians and pour tar on them and then light them at night to light his garden so he could see his way to make it through the garden. We all know of those bloodthirsty sporting events of the Romans in which they took Christians and threw them into the arenas with wild animals to be torn to shreds. And then Roman Catholicism later had its inquisition and there were millions of people that were convicted of heresy and killed in the cruelest ways imaginable. Now if you didn't know that, And if you haven't heard about that, then get a copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs. And there you can read about some terrible things, terrible ways that Christians have been persecuted. So many terrible ways, you just get cold chills when you read it. So Jesus said his disciples would have persecution. But persecution has never stopped the church. The church has always thrived in persecution because there's one thing that we know, death does not deter us. You can tell a Christian that you're going to be put to death for serving Jesus Christ. And if you are someone who really knows Christ as Savior, he gives you the grace to go through that. You're not afraid of death. He enables you to conquer death. You know by believing in him that one day you're going to rise from death. You have no fear. You can't imagine... People can't imagine that death could be called a blessing, but that is exactly what the Bible calls it. The Bible says precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints. Death actually moves us out of the sorrows of this life and into the untold joys of the next life. We're not afraid of death. Now, Satan, though, would love it if what he could do was to keep you, not only kill you, but keep you dead. Satan would love to keep you in the grave because if you stay in the grave, if you don't awake, if there is no eternal life, if God does not resurrect you, then you can't be someone who's going to praise God, sing glories to him, honor him throughout all of eternity. Satan does not want you to praise God, so he would love that death could remain uh, with a hold on you that he could keep us in the tomb. But we can't stay in the tomb any more than Jesus could stay in the tomb. Because the Bible promises that as Christ was raised, so we shall be raised. That the same power that brought Jesus Christ to life is the same power that brings us to life. This is what Paul wrote to persecuted Romans. He said, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the spirit that dwelleth in you. Now, see that? 
if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you. And there is the key to this whole thing. How do you overcome death? You must have the spirit of Christ in you. You must have believed in Jesus Christ. If you haven't, then when you die, death will conquer you. But it's not so for the Christian. So we can think of, we can think of the passage in this way. But I, I think it's better for us to see this in this way, that as many as Satan is able to kill, as many as he has persecuted, as many different ways as he has devised to get rid of Christians, the church has never been stamped out. Now, I don't have time to turn to it now, but in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul wrote that we keep on winning people to Christ. We keep on baptizing them. We keep the work of God alive on the earth, and we just keep on going because death is never going to stamp out the Lord's church. Now, from that, we can conclude two other things. Two other issues stem from this. Because we conquer death, we also learn this, that the church has victory over sin. Now, sin is a terrible problem in our lives today, but we have the promise that we will overcome sin. Now, the Bible says that death is our final enemy, but what is it that leads to death? We have the answer to that in Romans 6.23, where it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So death is brought to fruition by sin. Sin causes death. So if you're going to conquer death, then what has to precede it? Well, you have to get rid of the cause of death, don't you? Sin caused death, and we have to get rid of sin in order to get rid of death. And when Adam sinned against God in the garden, his sin brought death. Adam disobeyed God. If he had lived under that righteous rule of God, if he obeyed God perfectly, then Adam would have been able to live forever in the garden. But when he rebelled against God, he sinned against God, and he was cursed. And when he was cursed, the inevitability of death was the result of that. So death engulfed the world because of Adam's sin. Just as soon as Adam sinned, you know what God had to do? He had to kill something. He had to kill animals. He killed animals in order to clothe Adam and Eve. And since that time, the entire creation has been marching towards death. Because of sin, men, animals, plants, they all die. Sin is in the world and sin causes death. But what God has promised is that he will reverse that curse. When we have been assured the victory over death, then we have to be assured the victory over sin because sin brings death. Now you might ask a question, well, if we have victory over sin, when did we get it? When did we get the victory over sin? Well, I have an answer for that too. You have victory over sin. You achieved that victory when Jesus went to the cross. It was at the cross that Jesus took all of our sins. When he was nailed to that cross, he took all of our sins upon him. Then he was raised for our justification. Sin had separated us from God, but when Jesus died, he took all of the believer's sins away. He took all of the punishment of our sins, and he arose from the grave to prove that we had been justified. So that's a conclusion. 
that Christians have victory over sin. And the third one is this, that Christians or the church also has victory over Satan. Satan is our arch enemy. He's the one who wants to destroy the church. Every single day, you butt heads with Satan. You get up in the morning and you want to read your Bible, what happens to you? Why, you can't concentrate? You can't keep your mind on what you're reading? Who does that? That's Satan who's working against you. You get up and you want to pray, or maybe you don't pray at all. But let's suppose that you do want to pray. Who is it that puts a thousand things in your way that the moment that you close your eyes and you start to talk with God, something happens, there's some interruption, somebody wants to talk to you, something else happens in the room, that's Satan who's trying to keep you away from talking to God. And it happens right here in church too. Did you know that? Do you want to know the reason why that instead of listening to me, that you're sitting in that seat and counting the moles on the back of somebody's neck? That's because Satan is trying to take you away from the word. He doesn't want you to hear what's being said. So Satan tries to ruin your spiritual life by taking you away from the word of God, by taking you away from praying to God, by taking you away from the preaching of God, by taking you out of the service of God and by keeping you from being a good testimony in your Christian life for others. Satan is always the enemy of the Christian. He's always fighting against us, and he never stops. But you know what God promises? He says, for every temptation that Satan has for you, there is a way for you to escape it. You don't have to yield to Satan. You don't have to give in to him. You don't, let him have to have, uh, you don't have to let him have the victory. You know, as hard as Satan may try, you actually belong to Christ. And there's no way that he can keep control of you. The Holy Spirit has come to live in you as a child of God, and God never intends to let you go. He's not going to surrender you to Satan. And so all the spiritual cannons that Satan fires against us, none of it is good enough to win the final victory over us. So the Bible says that Satan is the tempter and temptation leads to sin and sin leads to death. And so if you have conquered death, then you've also conquered sin and you've conquered Satan. Now is that clear to you? If you are on God's side, you never have to fear sin, death, or Satan. Now let me give you another quick thought on this point before we move to our last one today. From this scripture, we get what is called the doctrine of perpetuity. The doctrine of the perpetuity of the church. What does that mean? Well, the doctrine of perpetuity says that Christ's church will always be here. That the church will never cease to be in the world until God comes to remove it from the world. And we can see it from what we just noted this morning. That if death is taken away, and sin is taken away, and Satan is taken away, these are the great enemies of God's church. If those things are all taken away, then who is there to stop the church? So the church will always be here. Now you hear some people say, well yes, I I know that the church is here, but there was one time when the church became corrupted, and so the church had to be reformed. Christ's true church never needed to be reformed. And folks, that's why we're not Protestants. Did you know that? As Baptists, at least this Baptist, does not claim to be a Protestant. 
And that's because I don't believe that Christ's true church was ever corrupted. Now, to be a Protestant, you have to believe that Catholicism was once a true church, and then it went wrong and needed to be reformed. Well, it needed to be reformed, all right, but Catholicism was never a true church. The true church has always existed. It never needed reformation. And then there are others who say, well, the New Testament church ceased for a while, that it was here at the beginning, but then something happened to it. And along about the middle of the 19th century, the church had to be restored. And you have groups that teach that. The churches of Christ, for instance, teach that. The Christian church teaches that. Mormons also teach that. And they believe that they're a part of a great restoration movement of the church. Well, folks, the church never needed to be restored because the church has never gone out of business. Back 2,000 years ago, when Jesus began the church, he gave a promise, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So that true church has always been here. That means that you can find a true church today. That means that you can look into the last century and there you'll find a true church. It means that you can go back to the dark ages and there you would find a true church. It means that you can go back before the fourth century when Catholicism began and you can find a true church of Jesus Christ. And that's because the promise is right here in his word from the lips of the Savior himself, the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Now you say, well, Pastor Smith, why are you a Baptist? Haven't I already answered that question? I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of that. If I can find a true church, then what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to join it. I'm going to become a part of it. And I know that might be a little strong for some of you, but I'm sure not going to say that, well, I'm a Baptist, but I'm not sure if it's a true church. You're not going to hear me say that. And so if a church can honestly show that it teaches the same doctrines that Jesus and the apostles taught, if the church can show that there were churches just like it down through the ages, if the church can show that it's been here since the time of Christ, if it can show that it's never been lost, it can show that it's never had to be restored, that it did not become corrupt, that it never needed to be reformed, then what is that church? Well, it has to be a true church ask and answered, and that's why I am a Baptist. I make no apologies for that. Now, finally, we have verse number 19. Let me say this about being a Baptist, too. Uh, I've told you this before. We have the, the, the name on the sign for a reason. We teach Baptist doctrine in here. Uh, we, we think that this is the truth of God's word, and you can find a hundred different churches. There are people that are saved in all different kinds of churches, but if they got saved, folks, they all got saved the same way that I did. They all believe the very same gospel that I believe. They believe the very same Christ that I believe, that he did the same thing for me that he did for them. Nobody's saved in a different way. So we look for the truth of the gospel in the church. Now then finally, we have verse number 19. This is a very, very important verse. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven... And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Oh, there's a lot of problems with that. There's a lot of argument over this. This, this verse and the ones that are preceding it has caused the Roman Catholic Church to build a doctrine of the primacy of Peter. 
Now, we took care of that mostly two weeks ago, but on their false doctrines from those previous verses and from this verse, they get the idea that Peter and his successors have power on earth to permit or to deny access into heaven. Now, if you've ever heard a joke like this, once there was a Baptist, and there was a Jew, and there was a Catholic, and they all died And they went and appeared at the pearly gates. And Peter was there. And then the joke goes on from there. That here, Peter is the one who sits at the pearly gates. And Peter has the one who has has the power to let people into heaven. Where did that idea come from? Well, it actually came from this verse. That the Roman Catholic Church has taken this and said Peter is primary. Peter has primacy, that Peter was the first pope. And then they passed the power of Peter down to the successive popes and down through the church and down through history. And so now they have the power to let people into heaven. Or they can keep people out of heaven. So they have the power to commend you or they have the power to condemn you. And then from these verses, they all also find final authority for the absolution of sin. And the final authority to collect money from you to forgive sins. The power to let people out of a non-existent place called purgatory and charge for that too. Lots of strange doctrines come out of these ver- this verse. So let's simplify it a little bit. What, what did Jesus mean when he said to them, I, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What does that mean? Well, let's call this fourthly, the permission of the church. The permission. Now, as you know, Jesus Christ is not physically present in the world today. And so in the absence of Christ's physical presence, and he is the authority of the church, he is the head of the church, I don't think anybody disagrees with that. In his absence, what does the church have the power to do? Is there any human who sits as a gatekeeper to heaven? Well, I want you to notice that Jesus said, And I, and I will give unto thee the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now there, folks, that tells us that all the authority rests in Jesus Christ. And so whatever is to be done must be in agreement with the authority that Christ has granted. So let's wrap it up in a few short statements today. First of all, what does this mean? Well, it means the church has the authority to interpret Scripture. We have never been given the authority to invent Scripture. We have never been given authority to add content to Scripture. We have never been given the authority to take away content from the Scriptures. Now, all of our faith and practice comes from here. All of it has to be found right here. God's Word came down to us from heaven. It came through the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit upon the writers who gave us the Bible. It is God's Word directly given to us. So what does that mean? Well, it means if you can't find a practice in the church, if you can't find a practice in the Bible, like rosaries and prayers to Mary and prayers to angels and prayers to the dead and purgatory and the mass and the confessional and penance and holy orders and last rites and the sale of indulgences, if you can't find that in the Bible, what does it mean? It means that you are to reject it all. Reject all of it because it's not biblical. 
It hasn't come from God. There is only one standard of faith and practice, and that is God's word. Peter said, we are born again by the word of God. The Apostle Paul wrote, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Do you understand how comprehensive that that verse is? I mean, if you have everything here in the word of God, in scripture, that's profitable for doctrine, what you need to know about God and what God wants you to do, it's profitable for your reproof. It tells you when you're doing wrong. It gives you your correction. It instructs you in the way of righteousness that God wants want you to go then what else is there what else can man give that's beyond the word of God and this is why we teach and we believe that the Bible is the only rule of faith and practice scripture is never contradictory and if you ever find a doctrine that you think is contradictory in one place to another place then your doctrine is wrong not the scriptures so the church comes together as a body and we study the scriptures And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we discern the truths of Scripture. We we bring out a and we formulate a statement of faith of what we believe that the Bible teaches. This is what we agree on. And we have a statement of faith for our church. Now, it doesn't contain everything that's in the Bible, but it's it's a condensed form of the doctrines that we believe are taught in the Bible with scriptural proofs. And if you haven't read it, you ought to read it. You ought to learn it. You ought to read it. If you became a member of this church, you should have already read it because you agree to it. When you become a member of the church, you agree to that statement of faith. So the church accepts the Bible and the Bible alone as the authority for our faith and practice. And God gives us that ability to interpret Scripture. Then secondly, the church has the authority to concur with salvation. Jesus said, Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, but whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, that is not as hard as it seems. We don't have to labor a lot on this. Now, it obviously does not mean that we have the power to save anyone. I can't save anybody. You can't save anybody. And it does not mean that we have the power to keep people out of heaven. I can't do that either. I can't shut up heaven to anybody. So what do we have the power to do? Well, we can say with full assurance that if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you believe that he is fully God and that he became incarnate and that he died on the cross and he died to pay the penalty of your sins and if you agree that you are a sinner that you are under the wrath of God that if you will repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ then we can say with full authority that you are born again that you are forgiven that your sins are gone and that you are on your way to heaven We agree with what the word of God says. We have the authority that says if you believe those things, then you're on your way to heaven. So all I can say is if you repent, and if you believe, and if you receive Christ as Savior, then God will let you into heaven. But if you don't, if you do not repent, if you do not believe, then you won't go to heaven. Because the wrath of God is still on you. You will have to suffer the penalty of your sins in hell. That's not hard to understand, is it? It's not real difficult. If you repent and believe, then I can say to you, welcome to the kingdom of God. Am I the one that let you in? No. I just agreed with what God said. 
Jesus is the authority, and upon the authority of his word, I concur with him that you are either saved or you are condemned. So the church has the authority to concur with God on the declaration of salvation. So it's not a matter of rank. It doesn't mean, well, the only way that you can tell if people are going to go into heaven is by what the Pope says. It's not a matter of rank. It doesn't matter if you're the Pope, if you're a cardinal, if you're a blue jay or a cuckoo bird for coconuts. It doesn't matter. You don't, it's not that authority. If you are a born-again Christian, if you sitting in that pew, if you are a born-again Christian, you have the authority to tell someone that they'll go to heaven if they believe in Jesus Christ. You have that authority. You don't keep them out. You don't let them in. You just agree with what God says. He's the authority. And we agree with what he says. So it's as simple as that. Now you can think of it this way, just a brief illustration. What if you go out in the parking lot today and you break into somebody's car? Now I hope nobody here would do that. But let's suppose you go out there and you break into a car. And as you do that, there's a policeman that's passing by and he sees you. And so he comes up to you and he says, now, now, you're guilty of grand larceny. And because of that, you're going to have to spend one year in jail. Could you say, well, you have no authority to tell me that. You can't tell me that I've broken the law and I'm going to jail. Well, he's not the one that passes the sentence on you, but he has the authority of the law behind him, doesn't he? And he can tell you what's going to happen to you. This is the crime that you have committed, and here's the penalty that you have to pay. I'm just like that. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are just like that. You don't let people in or out of heaven, but you have the authority to tell people the sin that they have committed and the consequences of that sin and the penalty that has to be paid. And where do we get the information? God gave it in his word. We just agree with it, and we pass that information along. So if you believe, you will be saved. If you don't, you won't. Whatever is bound on earth, this is the time to believe. You must believe him now. Whatever is bound on earth is also bound in heaven. And folks, that tells you one thing. You don't want to leave this life without knowing Jesus Christ because there is no change from here to heaven. When you die, that's it. That's it. There's no no second chances. You must believe in Jesus Christ now. What is bound here is bound in heaven. That's what God's word says. So if that's what the Pope does, if that's what he actually does, then I pronounce every one of you today Pope's. All of you can be popes if you want. Go outside in the vestibule. We'll have your robe for you, your ring, and your funny hat. You can have it all if you want. But to be serious about this, folks, it is very serious. We have the authority, or the only authority, I should say, that is just the authority that is granted by God's word, granted by Jesus Christ. We don't do anything in our power. We don't save anybody. We don't condemn anybody. We only go by the authority of what God says. And I can say this. You trust in Jesus Christ, you'll hear me say to you, welcome to the family of God. Now, would you like me to say that about you? Would you like to hear people say to you, welcome to the family of God? See, God has called us to be the doorkeepers of the house of the Lord. And if you have the right credentials, then we'll say, come on in. You repent of your sins and you trust Jesus to save you, then we say, come on in. And you'll hear a little bit of heaven in here today. You'll hear heaven in here today if you receive Christ as Savior because the thing that unlocks heaven for you is your faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. Faith unlocks the door. 
And we will praise God if you trust him because you have entered into his kingdom. Whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven. We have the authority to agree with God. And that's the only person I want to agree with. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for this great truth that Jesus taught in this passage of scripture. Lord, we, we're, we're thankful that that, that that onus is not placed upon us to decide what is truth and is not truth. You've already revealed that in your word. And so we just take what you say and we let people know what you've said and we give them the gospel of Jesus Christ and we promise them just as you promise that if you believe, if you repent of your sins, if you believe, then you will be saved. And Lord, we're thankful that we have that message to tell. I just ask you, Lord, you'd speak that to someone's heart today. May they really understand that. And then we can rejoice with them that they have entered into the kingdom of God, that they are now citizens of heaven if they've trusted Jesus Christ to save them. Lord, help us to give that message to everyone that we meet. Let them know that they need Jesus as Savior. Bless us in this time as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.